0: All right, Ian Thorpe, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? Good, man. How are you? Good, good. I'm actually a little nervous. You're a, you're a teammate of mine for six years and I'm a little nervous talking to you.
1: Why are you nervous? You're <laughs> on the other side of the world. There's not like I can do anything to you.
0: <laughs> you always made me nervous. So I was always nervous racing you. I was always nervous being around you. Uh, you're, just a, you're just a legend in my mind, mate. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people ha- who have opinions on you, and I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones to know you, kind of from the athletic sense, in terms of what you did, but also the personal side as well. And I can attest to how much of a legend you were. Um, just, just the way you handled yourself, uh, you know, in the public eye and away from the public, um, you were everything that uh, I believed a champion should be and a, and a legend should be. You, you just kind of embodied all of that. And so everything that people think about you, that's what I think about you, even, even though I know you personally. So that's, that's kind of the way I feel about you, mate. Thanks. That's um, made my day. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, yeah,
1: we can end now if you want. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, uh-huh. listen, uh, you know, I asked you to come on the podcast cause I'm super interested in performance. I'm interested in um, the way champions like yourself handled pressure and, and, got the best out of themselves, and there was none better than you uh, for such a long period of time in Australia. And, um, and I'm just so interested in kind of getting into your head a little bit. So I know we've got you for a little bit of time. I want to jump into that. Is that all right?
1: Yeah, like, yeah, of course. Look, for me, you know, what I think and when it comes to, to being a, a champion, um, I, or, or being a true champion, it comes down to having a respect for those who have come before you, Um, that have inspired you to do what you do but also being the inspiration for another generation to follow you. Um, I think that's the true marking and the true test uh, that we have to look at when it comes to what makes a champion.
0: Yeah well I know that you look at your career in kind of three stages three main stages there's kind of the pre-Sydney and then there's the next phase of kind of the the pre-Athens and Athens, you know, you have your Sydney Olympics, and then you have your Athens Olympics four years later, and then you have kind of the, what comes after that. And I kind of want to kind of just talk about those three stages in particular. Um, so let's kind of dive into, you know, pre-Sydney, um, you know, you were a prodigy, you were somebody that came onto the scene very young at a, at a at, you know, full steam ahead at, at a very young age and and... Caught the attention of the public and was in the media straight away. What was it like for you, being a prodigy, being a young prodigy, and having all that media attention at a very young age?
1: Yeah, look, it, it it's weird um, to to put it bluntly. Um, but you know, I I also when I was when I was really young, I always thought maybe I am just a child prodigy. I am not going to be someone. That goes beyond that that takes it to a level where um, you know I was at an Olympic or world championship kind of level um, you know I always kind of growing up before the Sydney Olympics as being a talented age group swimmer mm. I always thought I was just gonna be too young uh, for the Sydney Olympics uh, but that wasn't going to be my time um, and you know it, it it really, it really probably was the World Championships um, when in '98. Um, so I, I just turned 15, um, and you know I won my, my first World Championship gold medal um, as a 15 year old. And you know that was when that kind of shifted. From I had made the national team prior to that, but now I, I went into it. Well, I was going about to go into an Olympic Games or trials and everything else as the As the world champion, um, I can remember at those world championships um, walking in to what was a pretty full press kind of gallery of, of, of people, and how you know unprepared I actually was for that, um, and just going, "Wow, this is probably going to be part of your life now." Um, and, you know, I made the decision when I, I walked in, I, I'm going to be good at this um, because I have to be, because it ha- it's going to be part of what I need to be able to do leading into the Olympic Games. Um, you know, the following, well, during that year, um, later in the year, um, I missed a world record by 1 100th of a second, uh, which I kind of smiled at. Um, just, you know, 1 100th of a second, um, <laughs> which... Meant the following year, I, I broke four world records in four days. So it, it kind of, you know, then becomes a motivator. But you know, the more success that I kind of had leading into the Sydney Olympics, the more pressure you know I had on myself. Um, you know, I was told by people, I can't, I can't wait to see you swim at uh, the first night. I've got tickets. Can't wait to see you win your first Olympic gold medal. And I'm like, I'm just at the shops. <laughs> like it's, um, like it, it's. You don't realize that just the level of expectations. People just assumed um, that I'd be able to to win uh, and win comfortably. But um, my preparation, you know, leading into the Sydney Olympics wasn't it wasn't ideal. as far from it. Um, you know, I broke my ankle less than twelve months out from the games, which completely changed my training. Um, you know, I then my first meet back, I was accused by. Um, the head coach of one of the national teams of uh, doping. I think it was human growth hormones that I was accused of taking, I think. Mm. Um, which, you know, because he'd read a study about um, if you have large hands and large feet, which I happen to have, um, you know, it can be caused by human growth hormones. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, it's more likely you know, it, it's it's there because my parents both have large hands and large feet, but Um, You know, that was kind of, you know, what what I went into. And I know at that meet, when I I swum there, this was in, I think, January or February of 2000, Um, I um, was given the opportunity to actually withdraw from a race. Um, And you you remember Don Talbot, who, Mm. you know, I I describe as kind of this crusty old school, old coach, um, who's a little bit um, angry all the time. Um, You know, a good man. you know, done some great work, some, some great work for swimming. Yeah. But he said, look, I've never given anyone the opportunity to actually withdraw from a race. Um, but considering the circumstances that you're in right now, I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to let you. Um, and this was after the heat of a 200 freestyle in Berlin. Um, and it was the German head coach who accused me of doping. Um, I, I then, I said, let me swim down. I'll give you an answer by the time I swim down. I swam down and um, you know, I made the decision that I, I'd brace. Uh, I, I was thinking, do you know what? I have broken my ankle on the way into the Olympic Games. I've now been accused of doping by someone. You know, what else can be put up against me um, to winning at the Sydney Olympics? And I kind of took it that I was gonna go into the Sydney Olympics knowing that whatever was thrown up against me, I had prepared for it as best I could. Um, Mm. And that was my rationale going into it. I then swung that final um, in Berlin, um, and I think I broke the world record by like two or three seconds, Mm. um, which, you know, probably suggested that I was doping. Like, um, (laughs) but it was was one of those things that I knew that I had to be able to compete no matter what was going on around me. Um, I also remember that all of my, you know, all of the other teams came down onto pool deck, which is a weird thing, to congratulate me um, on that performance. Mm. You know, the person who came second in that race said to me, he said, I wish I hadn't swung the race. And I was like, why? You swung well. Um, he's like, no, I would have loved to have seen you swim that. Um, which was, you know, a really cool response that I I, I received from, you know, my colleagues around the world um, yeah. for what I've worked.
0: Yeah. Mate, there was enormous pressure on you, like you said, leading into Sydney. What was the driving force for you why why did you um, why were you doing what you were doing if you just personally um,
1: look i from when I was a kid I, I loved the way that I felt when I was swimming um, and what I could do in the pool. I was really someone that was uh, you know I, I was into the technical parts of what I could do, um, and it was so and, and for me you know modifying my stroke and things like that, you know, that was of interest. Um, I'm one of the weird athletes that actually, you know, prefers uh, to, to actually be training than competing. Um, and, you know, most people, you know, they train so they can compete. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the reverse. I, I competed so that I could justify, you know, doing all the training that I did. Um, and don't get me wrong, I enjoyed competing um, as well. But for me, training was really, was my love of, of, of my sport.
0: Yeah. Mate, I got a very close friend of mine out here, Jack Roach, who was a very famous uh, junior, USA junior coach, um, traveled with the junior team. And, and he, he says this thing that, um, you know, most athletes at this level, um, hate to lose. They don't love to win. They hate to lose. Was that something for you? Did you hate to lose more than you wanted to win necessarily? Uh,
1: <laughs> uh, look, there's, there's, there's really is one event that I, in, in my career that I consider that I lost. Um, and it was a 200 freestyle in Sydney. Yeah. Um, and it, I was up against a great opponent. So it, up against Peter van and Hogenberg a Dutch swimmer yeah. um, who's you know one of arguably the best sprint swimmers that we've seen um, or one of them yeah. um, so it was you know a couple of nights after you know first winning and I you know that's a race that I considered losing there's been some others, there's been some relays and things that really we should have won uh, but didn't um, I look at my performance within them and it was as good as it should be. Um, When it came to that race, it was the first time, and you, as a sprinter, you'd appreciate this, hockey. I, um, at at the games, I can remember pushing off the wall, ready to go for the last lap. And I pushed off, you know, I kicked underwater and I went to go, I went to accelerate, to engage, to really drive home the last 50. And for the first time in my life, I had nothing. I had nothing to put into it. And I just knew that I this is going to get worse. Um, I'm going to fade away here no matter what I can do. And, you know, I tried things that I would tried before, like um, lengthening my stroke and getting into other things rather than focusing on what I couldn't control. And I, I just had nothing. Um, but my resolve after it, you know, really kind of probably defined the next four years was I decided that I would prepare in a way that even on my worst day, I would be better than any of my competitors on their very best day. Mm. And that was the way I trained rather than being the kid leading up to Sydney who was, you know, talented, um, who'd done a lot of work, who, um, you know, was still questioning you know their their place um, in uh, in 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 the sport itself I decided no I'm going to define my my place in this, this sport um, and I also knew that you know going into every competition all of my competitors knew that as well they knew what I'd done in training um, and they knew that they hadn't matched it they hadn't you know really been all that close um, to what I'd done over, you know, both, you know, my middle distance training and then, you know, it started to become some of my speed stuff that I was doing as well.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, Doug Frost was obviously a big part of your early career and early success. What was kind of the theory behind the training that you're doing? How, you know, how did you train? <laughs> um,
1: Yeah. Um, So I went through a period where it was basically, let's flog the athlete as much as we possibly can Um, and see what happens. And the more you survive that, the worse it gets. Um, The more kilometers that are thrown on, the tighter the times are to be able to turn around. And um, I, I have a stubborn side in what I do that comes from my father. And, you know, I just refuse to... To break down, um, to actually have a set that I couldn't complete or that I couldn't do, I just refused. I refused suddenly, um, and you know, again, this was 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 good for a while. But I, I can remember the the session um, and the set, and I was at altitude. Um, and you know we we're doing weeks where well, I, I know I was over 120 kilometers in a, a week, so mm. um, 80 miles is that about right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So and it was at altitude in Flagstaff in Arizona, mm. and I was given one of the test sets that you know was pretty standard for me to do, which was uh, 3,000 meters for time. Um, and I can remember I I, I did it. And I, it was either I swam it in 30 minutes 46 or 30 minutes 16. And I can't remember which one. Mm. Um, if you want to find out, uh, I know that the US were also recording all of my times, <laughs> writing down every every session that I was doing at this point in time while I was using their facilities, um, which I wasn't kind of all that happy about, but whatever. <laughs> um, so I had this and I, I, I delivered that performance the fastest I'd ever done. And then um, we had a thousand meters, I think it was, easy or something like that was written on the board. So the session at that stage was about six and a half to seven kilometers. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's about it. So while I'm doing that thousand easy up on the board, um, it is then a 3100 um, you know, heart rate set. So, you know, 10 at 30 beats below, 10 at 20 beats below, 10 at 10 beats below mm. um, on like, I don't know, 130, 140, two minutes or something around that. And I can remember looking at the set exhausted um, and thinking again, um, I have to do everything, um, you know, to never doubt what I can do on the blocks and I I went through that set and I did a good job. Um, I my teammates that were training with me, you know, they fell in pieces mm. over that set. Um, and I, you know, I was probably when it came to the last 10 100s in that, I was probably just over like a second off what I would normally be able to do it at. Yeah. So it was like it was a solid performance after what I'd just done in in that three kilometer trial. But I got out of the pool after that set and we had sports scientists and things around us and knew kind of how depleted we'd all be. And it did send me into a hole, um, basically. But when I got out of the pool, I reminded my coach, Doug, uh, at that time um, to never do that ever again to me. I said, you had written it on the board. I would have approached it in the same way. But now I can't trust you. Uh, and you've actually deceived me. Um, that's not a working relationship between a coach and an
0: athlete. Yeah. Man, that's, pretty, that's actually a good point. It's pretty incredible because when I first knew Ian Thorpe as a young kid, I thought there must be somebody behind the curtain. There must be somebody telling him what to say because he's very measured, very intelligent. For a young kid, It was it was way beyond your years. And so I always thought to myself, there's got to be somebody else doing this for him. And then as I got to know you, and then the more I saw you in pressure situations and making decisions for yourself, I realized this is a very measured man. This is a man, a young man who knows exactly what he wants. He knows exactly where he wants to go. And I was just so blown away that somebody would have that level of, um, intelligence. And, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, Philpy just, uh, experience, at such a young age you knew exactly what you wanted out of life and that always impressed me and that kind of is an example of that right there right yeah it is
1: um you know and i for me i, I and i i i was very clear at that stage in what direction i was taking and what i wanted to do mm. um i also you know i was someone that you know when i when i make a decision i i stick with it it's mm. that's that's it and You know, there's a lot of thought that comes behind that kind of decision as well. Um, You know, I used to get criticized for, you know, taking time off after major competitions and things, but I really just needed that space, you know, just to kind of breathe um, and to be able to experience the world as well. Um, You know, I'd mostly travel um, and, you know, do things that I wouldn't be able to do while I'm I'm training, Um, you know, see the world. Because, you know, for me, I I gave up my education um, when I was young and my education became um, my experience throughout the world. And it meant that I had a very different um, educational experience to what most people did. And I look at things in a different way. Um, But for me, I guess, in getting back to where we're talking about, you know, a level of professionalism that isn't expected from a young person. Mm. When you're young, you you don't think that way. You think you know everything. Um, And I still had a little bit of that with some life experience that came with it. So it meant when I made a decision, that was the decision. Um, And I didn't shirk that. And I didn't, you know, I, and going back to when I was 15, when I was talking about it, that press conference, you know, once I was in that position, I wasn't, I decided, you know, I'm not just the kid who did this. I, I, I owned being the world champion. Um, I didn't act in an arrogant way around it, but it was something that I had accomplished. And I think for a lot of athletes, um, owning their performances and not making excuses um, separates the very best um, from those that are very good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can attest to the fact that, like I said, I knew you personally, so I can attest to the fact that you that certainly never took drugs, that, that, that never happened. But I can also attest to the fact that some people used to say that, oh, he had, a, he had this black suit and that was the big difference for him. And I saw you, I can remember this quite vividly, and I hope I get the time right, but right before the Sydney Olympics, we were down in Melbourne and you got up on the blocks in just a, a little swimsuit, you know, training suit. And you dove a 146, 200, 146 flat, 200 free. I'm pretty sure it was 146. I, I, hope, I hope that's right. I know it wasn't slower than that, but it may have even been faster because you just did some incredible things in practice. I didn't see anybody else do ever. Yeah,
1: I, it may have been faster. Yeah, um, it
0: probably was. So,
1: um, look, I'm... And, and look, it's relevant talking about Sunsuits and, and things like that. Um, and I... You know, I, I broke world records in the smallest swimsuit you can imagine Yeah. Um, in papers, which wasn't even the most, you know, recent technology. Yeah. Um, I did that in 99. I wore a custom made swimsuit, um, you know, after that into 2000 and, and throughout my career or most of my career. Um, and yeah, it was a, a highly kind of refined product, but it wasn't made out of plastic. Mm. still made out of lycra Um, I didn't wear it in training I only wear it when I race and I was able to produce similar times um, in training to what I did in in competition Mm. Um, So, you know for me I've always looked at you know how much benefit is there and you know we're talking tenths of a second over 400 meters max not you know we're not talking seconds Um, and it you know, for me, it was, look, I, I thought it was a good thing for the sport is that we needed a level position where we could actually have competition with swimwear manufacturers, which would actually help the sport. Um, you know, I was with Adidas, I still am. Um, and I thought it was good that we had larger companies coming into the sport that had an interest in it, um, that would help to be able to promote the sport as well.
0: Yeah, sure. So you know, leading into Athens. By Go hockey.
1: yeah, because um, I actually had that option at the Sydney Olympics. Um, I I I just won the four hundred freestyle, um, and I was nervous going into it. Um, I only remember like I did the kid thing um, when because I I, I I was still doubting myself at this stage, um, and I I went in. Um, and I was nervous walking out in front of what was the biggest swim crowd they would ever been. Mm. And when they announced my name, um, it was the applause was so loud no. that I I couldn't help myself. But do that thing that you do when you're at school and you get in trouble and you don't know what to do, so you smile. Mm. Um, I did that and it just gave me that second to get out of my head. But right after that race, and someone, one of the coaches had told me, look, if you can do this and kind of conserve a little bit, Um, you've know, you got a four by 100 relay, which is not the thing that you say to a young athlete. Um, If they've swum multiple events, because you then start questioning, well, what's wrong with me? What's not going right? That you'd say that, hey, I can't back up for the next race, which was a big ask in itself. But what happened before that race, I actually split a swimsuit, um, which was my second one um, to put on for that night. And I was looking at that swimwear that you're talking about, and I had a decision, um, which was to either be able to get back into the wet swimsuit that I had on, um, that i just wanted the 400 freestyle in, or to put on my training costumes, um, which were like, you know, probably two years old, falling apart, they may have had a hole in the back. Like it just, you know, it, it was those two options. And I can remember trying to get ready because I, being able to, you know, I, I had to go f- and receive my gold medal. I had to do different things. I had to recover, swim down, um, and then get ready for this race. And it was all timed for me, so I knew where I needed to be. Um, I can remember, like, trying to put this swimsuit on, and I had it just past my knees. And we had one of the team managers outside of the change room saying, no, 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 Thorpe's is on his way. He's... Um, He's walking up now, he's just left. And I had about eight people around me trying to pull this swimsuit up, you know, around my legs. This was just past my knees at this stage. And then they're like, no, nope, Thorpe's left. I don't know why he's not there yet. Like, he he really should be in marshalling right now. And this is what I'm hearing. And I'm like, it's not even past my waist. And then I'm like, I okay, got all of you people, everyone that's around me, you're freaking me out. One person to help me. Um, and so I got Adam Pine who um, swum... Uh, the relay, he's one of the lead in the 4x1. Uh, mm. And he was the only one helping me basically pull this swimming suit on as I'm trying to get it over here, trying not to break another zip at mm. the back. And I can remember then running, uh, and this is after breaking an ankle running. Swimmers shouldn't run, just putting it out there. Um, and running up the back of, of the pool at uh, the Olympic pool. And running through, signing off my name, um, Mar- the lady's name is the official, her name's Margaret. Um, and you should always be nice to officials, that's the other thing. Um, so, <laughs> sign my name off that I did go through marshalling area just in time to be announced uh, in lane five um, as Australia to the crowd. And really none of my teammates thought much of it that I'd set up like literally at that point, I was like, okay.
0: Yeah. Mate, your heart yeah. rate must've been popping out of your chest. That's for sure.
1: Well, I was like, okay, I made it like, <laughs> um, and, but yeah, I, I actually considered swimming that race in a pair of training costumes. Um, wow. which I think of it, I, I also think of it, that would have freaked people out as well. Yeah. And it may have been, you know, it may have gone either way that people go, oh, he thinks he can win in, in these or whatever it was.
0: Well, let me just go on to that then because it was one of the greatest races in Australia's history where you are very poised during the race and you're racing Gary Hall Jr. who's one of the greatest sprinters in, in the history of the world. And, and talk me through that 100 that you just swam, you know, against Gary to win the gold medal.
1: Yeah, so look, it was, it was a really weird thing that... Um, not only did the Australian team think that we may, well, we actually thought that we could win it by the end, yeah. but also other people thought that we could. Um, and I think all of the guys in the team were kind of scratching our heads going, well, yeah, great, but how, where? Um, and we'd worked on changeovers and things like that, but it all came down to what would be our strategy in it, and it would be backhand speed, mm. knowing how the Americans had always raced this race. Um, and you know we look it, it. Every one of the the members of that team: Chris Feidler, um, Ashley Callis, um, who also had a blinding swim. You know, and then of course Michael Klim, who was at the front, who broke the record, um, mm-hmm. which gave us a lead. But for me, you know, I w- had recovered from the 400, and I remember Michael getting out of the pool. And, and you know how he's like—he's blind as a bat. Mm-hmm. He can't see anything. Never yeah. has been able um and he said to me what time did i do i said you just broke the world record and he, he goes well, yeah but what time and i'm like like dude i've got a race in a second like <laughs> you broke the world record it means it's really good like better than you've ever swum before you know no one else in the world's ever swum that fast like like just <laughs> let me do my thing um so you know any up in the blocks and that raw that um i i, I spoke about before the 400 um was a little bit more control than what it was when it came to what was building in this race because for some reason um, all of Australia believed that we could beat the American team in an event that the US had never lost in and um, I can remember how loud that was and having to focus in on you know the swimmer that's coming into me and letting that out of my head mm. um, knowing who I'm up against as well um, I can remember diving in, and all of that noise going silent. And the second I came up, hearing a buzz again from the crowd. It was pretty much also about the last time I was in front um, in that lap. And I was astonished, because I'd asked for the boys for, they asked me, what can we do for you? And I'd asked the guys, "Um, just get me a lead. And I, I realize now when you make requests, sometimes you need to be more specific. When I said a lead, I, did, I, I didn't mean 0.3 of a second. I meant like a second. Um, that was what I was hoping for. I wanted really clean water. Um, and I didn't get that. Um, but it, I, was, I was astonished then by how much Gary Hall Jr. in the second 25 of the Band 100, how much distance he'd put on me. And, and that crowd's kind of harm and noise. You kind of, it changed into what was a sigh where people went, um, you know, this isn't going to happen. But I, I hit the wall and I turned and um, I actually had a good turn. Um, I was able to keep under the water, miss the wash, which has always been an issue for me in hundreds because I'm usually behind. And I came up and I was like, great, first time. He hasn't put distance on me. And at 25 meters, I was gaining and at 15 meters to go, I realized how tight this was going to be. Um, and, you know, my body at this stage is, it is exploding, but I reminded myself of all the work that I'd done. Mm. Uh, I went into technique, did not think of, I wanted to win, but I wasn't thinking of the outcome. I went into My stroke's going to get shorter. I should emphasize how long it is um, so that I don't tighten up in this last part and really focus on that. Um, And that was, you know, me in the last 15 meters going into the wall.
0: Man, that's a great pointer for a lot of swimmers listening to this. Just stay focused on your technique and your length. And that's what you did to to win that race.
1: You you can't control the outcome of a race. Um, you, you, You have no control over that. What you have control over is what you do in the race. Um, And, you know, getting into those technical parts, that helps. You, You go into the moment rather than going to where you want to be and you increase the likelihood of the outcome that you want.
0: Yeah. Mate, we've got a limited time. So listen, you went on a four year run after that. where You just went berserk. And, and I just want to mention one thing. During that time, we went away to Japan a couple of times, but we, w- we went to Japan this one particular time. And I remember walking through customs and then into kind of the area where, where people would meet you. And I mean, it was madness. I, I mean, you were a rock star, a rock star. I mean, I can't even describe to people how crazy the scene is. Uh, What was that like for you to turn up to a place like that and just thousands of people going berserk?
1: Like... flattering. Um, but it like for me I'm actually I'm quite I'm quite shy and reserved and yeah, you know, it's just, you know, it's not my thing. Mm. But I don't feed off that mm. and it kind of I'm kind of a little bit more embarrassed as all of you guys took photos of what is going on. Yeah. Um, but right before it happened, the funniest thing is Ashley Callis goes, hey, do, do people in Japan know who you are? <laughs> and I said to him, I said, yeah, yeah, like a bit. Yeah, <laughs> was my response. Uh, and then, you know, we have police cordoning off the areas for us to get to our buses, and then fans that, um, you know, were literally chasing down the buses, mm. uh, you know, to try and have a photo of what hotel. Um, and everything else. I had to have um, two different entries, uh, excluding the main entry into that particular hotel that we had in Japan. Um, and look, and everyone at that pool, when they are waving a fan, you know, it had my head on it, um, which is kind of, you know, this is, this is weird, but it's the beginning of, of swimming kind of globalizing itself. Um, and that an athlete from Australia can the um you know uh, one of the biggest sporting stars in japan or you
0: know this in the world that, yeah, yeah. Well, um, how, how do you get comfortable with that though like i would be very uncomfortable in terms of performance because not only uh, uh, you know are you there to perform but you're, you're racing the best guys in the world these aren't chumps that you're up against these are the best guys in the world and then you go out there and dominate in these conditions
1: yeah, I, I think there's a benefit of being young in, in this if it had happened later on because in the, the difference that a, a young person looks look, has an outlook at the world, it's that you can accomplish anything. You can do anything. You've not been told what you can't do yet. And as you get older, you get told, you start thinking about a career. You start thinking, you start minimizing risk and things like that. Um, whereas I wasn't thinking that way. Um, I was thinking that I am still not the best swimmer that I can be. Um, and I there's more that I can do to get there. Mm. Um, so I, you know, going into that that swim meet, I um I, I won six gold, I think, in two thousand and one. Yeah, yeah, six at the the world championships, yeah. Um, you know, did a couple of extra events. Um but yeah, it was, uh, you know, for me, it was the reality of what you know I was then doing. It wasn't just the swimming part, the racing part, the training part. It was also then, um, you know, being in the media, um, having that kind of, you know, pop star status. Yeah. Um, funny thing with the pop star status in Japan was I was actually offered a record deal. Um, and I said to them but I can't sing. And they said, we don't care. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which I was like, oh, oh, I love it. I love it. That's yeah. awesome, uh, mate. Well, listen, we got to jump forward to the race of the century. So you go four years. You've got this thing hanging over your head for four years. Peter Van and Hugenband has beaten you in Sydney, um, and then you know, come come Athens, you know, you're going to go head to head with this man again. Plus, Michael Phelps is is now at the age where he's he's a dominant swimmer, and then you've got Grant Hackett in the race, and. and I hope I'm not missing. I know I'm missing some people because that's not Yeah, Matt
1: Rossellino, Yeah, Ross- And maybe one more. So I'm missing one as well.
0: Yeah, there's another one. So anyway.
1: Awesome. Champions in one yeah, race.
0: Yeah, it's the race of the century. So just talk us through. Uh, I talked to you earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago where I had said, I tell this story a lot where, about 20 minutes before the race, you know, you put your suit on or you, you know, you put part of your suit on and then you, you, you took, you got a group of us to sit around and you were asking us about animals, you know, and I found this fascinating because I'm into psychology, but you're asking us to kind of talk to, talk to you about animals that, you know, we perceive that, that offer strength or when we think of them, we think of strength. And you were kind of asking Grant Hackett, myself, and Michael Clem, you were kind of going around. It was about 20 minutes before the race of the century. And this is how you're thinking. Do you remember this?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I needed to be prompted on it um, because I was. I think it might have even started with, well, Hawkey, why do you have a hawk? Um, I think that's where the conversation may have begun. Mm. But it was part of you know, what I wanted to feel like when I was about to walk out as well is, you know, what animal do I wanna be? Am I, am I going to be, you know, like a leopard that will stalk, um, that's quite solitary? Um, am I going to be, a, you know, a lion? Or am I gonna be a pet that's quite, you know, sleek or, you know, something like that. Mm. And, you know, for me, I, you know, I, because I, when I talk to people and I, I talk about racing, um, the race does not begin when the gun goes off it is what you do before it, um, it's what you do after it. So in, as soon as I am sitting in, and this was the same for this race, as soon as I'm sitting in the Martian area, you know, I'm chilled, I'm relaxed, um, I'm chatting, you know, with my friends, with, you know, people I know. Um, and then the second that they actually, you know, announce, you know, this race to go out or move out to pull it's when I turn it on. Because um, I don't have energy, to be able to put it into trying to psych someone out that's just not me. Um, and so I put it into that, you know, when I stand up, it is shoulders back. When I walk out, I own that crowd, it's mine. Um, I take in the environment and then I start to narrow the focus into what I have to do in my lane and what I'm going to do here. But I walked out um, to that particular race and I'd swum a 400 before it. It was the worst swim of my career. I happened to still be able to win, but it was because I had a lot of emotion in that um, because one of my mates gave up their spot for me to swim. But once that race was over, I knew I was ready for the rest of my Olympics. And that really began with the 200 freestyle. Um, And I'd I'd been able to do more training for that event, um, so I knew where I was at. I went into it. Yeah, I I went into it, and I I, look. I I I thought I was a person to beat. I didn't look at it any other way. I wasn't intimidated by any of my competitors. Um, You know, Michael at at these Olympics won six gold. Um, This would have been his seventh, and it was probably a little bit you know premature for him in what he was doing, especially in freestyle. Um, but Peter, I, I saw as my biggest rival um, going into the event. Um, but I also, I, I, I played it a little bit different to what I did in Sydney. And, you know, I had, more, I had more tricks up my sleeve than what I had in Sydney. Now, I don't usually race off what other people are doing. Um, but I use it as information on how I'm going and where I'm at. And so, you know, I started to get into efficiency during that 200, which meant that I was conserving for the last 50 meters. And I knew as soon as I hit that wall that what happened in Sydney wasn't going to happen. And I thought about it at the time. Like when I did it, when I pushed off, when I went, um, I was thinking about Sydney. And I was like, nah, I don't, I don't feel that way this time. Um, and I, you know, I may have went slightly early, but it was just me wanting to go. Um, I'd, I'd lost a race, and the only race I really think that I've lost, and I wanted it back.
0: Yeah, and, and there was a lot of emotion at the end of that race. I mean, I, there's photos, some of the most classic photos of your career where you could just feel the emotion coming out of you. That, that race meant a lot to you, right?
1: It wasn't just that race. It was actually that preparation. I had been when newspapers were actually a thing. Um, you know, in the press, like, you know, probably 200 of the 365 days of the year for things that I had done I hadn't done or somewhere in between. Um, you know, good, bad press, like, um, but it was there, it was, it was constant leading up. And, you know, I went into those Olympics where I felt that the only choice I had, I, I had to win the 400. It was for my friend. Um, and for my team, and I wasn't gonna accept the swim, except for the fact that um, Craig Stevens, um he, he said to me, he said, look, the reason I really wanted my spot is because what it does for the team. You know, you always win on the first night and it lifts us all up. And I was like, you know, I had already been thinking of not swimming this race at this stage. Um, and I was like, he pretty much gave me the only reason why I could swim this um, and then I had to do it and I had to win. Um, so it wasn't just that it was, you know, so it was winning the, the 400 for a mate for the country mm. winning the 200, which was probably more for myself um, and to really recognize the work that I'd done with my, my coach, Tracy Menzies at that stage mm. to lead up to it. Um, you know, I went on and you know, ended up winning a winning a bronze medal in the hundred freestyle as well, um, from lane eight, uh, later in the meet. Um, And, you know, people say to me, look, if it was 10 meters long as you would have won, I'm like, yeah, then it would be the 110 meters freestyle. That's not the point. (laughs) Um, Like, it doesn't count. You don't get to set the rules to accommodate yourself. But I remember I beat one of my childhood heroes um, by one 100th of a second in the semifinal, which was Alex Popov, Mm. to make it into lane eight um in that 100 and you know that 100 for me is is one of my best ones as well um so apart from the 400 i actually had a, a really good individual kind of um athens olympic games
0: yeah well well then you've got the the third part of your career after athens and you know talk to us about kind of the third stage and the final stage of your career
1: Yeah, so look, I I decided I needed, I just needed time off. So straight after the Olympics, I didn't know if I, leading into the Athens Olympics, I I, I felt as though my career had changed so significantly from being a swimmer to being something else um, that I didn't know if I'd swim at all after Athens. By the t- and I also I also felt that way in Sydney. I kind of when I'm a young man, I've done everything that I ever intended to accomplish. Um, you know, I did it on day one at those Olympics. Um, is there more for me? And I came out of the Athens Games and actually was motivated that I wanted more out of my sport. I wanted more out of myself. Um, so I knew I needed time off. Um, I had six months off where I did nothing. And I did six months where I was just getting back into the pool um, and getting back into it, back into the routine. Um, you know, I kind of built up that, you know, for me, it was probably going to the Commonwealth Games in 2006. That's when I'm going to be ready. I'm definitely missing out on the World Championships in 2005. I'm not going to be competing there. Um, and so I started preparing and, you know, started to get more serious in training. But for, for me, what... I'd lost was there was no, you know, privacy around me being able to train. I get that when I'm in Japan, if I'm swimming at a competition, the focus, you know, was mostly on me. Um, and it was just, you know, for me when it came that, you know, I was getting papped at training. I was like, if I can't even have this to myself, I don't want the other part of it. Um, that, and I was pretty much put into a position where I was told, You need to make a decision um, whether you are going to swim at the next Olympics or not. I said, I'd love to swim at the next Olympics and it's kind of told by quite a few people that if you're going to do that, you need to be swimming at the next World Championships as well. And I was of the opinion then that for me to get through to another Olympic Games was that I would just not compete at anything. I'd just train. And then in the year leading up to it, I'd race and then you know race at the Olympic Games. That was kind of my backup plan going from um, someone that was, you know, really highly excited about the next kind of period um, to going, this just isn't for me. And so I moved on and I made a decision that um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't swim anymore. Uh, Cause I wanted, I wanted to feel like I had my life back. That's basically it.
0: Yeah. Wow. Mate, other than yourself, because you, you held yourself to a very high standard and um you know, I know that's how you measured yourself against yourself. Who was your toughest competitor over, over the, the course of your career?
1: I, I think, look, I think it's Peter. Um, he was the one that, that challenged me the most because of where he'd come from, from a, you know, sprint um, background to being able to sort of 200 freestyle and being good enough to be able to do that. Um, and me coming down from doing, you know, from middle distance, being able to do the 200, the 100 as well um and you know for me that's why i I actually i love a 200 freestyle because i think of how strategic it can be and how two different groups can actually meet at their if they're good enough if they're at the the level that they can be um you know i i also look and i may regret saying this um i i kind of wish michael phelps was kind of a little bit older um for me, it would have um, it would have challenged me. Sure. Um, I would I would have had someone else there,
0: sure. um,
1: especially and you know and I have the utmost respect for for Michael. Um, you know what he was doing in medley, but then when he started doing it in freestyle as well, um, that was when I really went wow. Um, he is he is extraordinary, um, and I wish that you know our careers overlapped a little bit more than what they did. and they could have if I if I had known that maybe um I and it's like be careful what you wish for right Um, (laughs) had it gone that way
0: it may have turned out a different story yeah no absolutely um I I had another question for you and I just I forgot what it was (laughs) something who knows but what was I like as a teammate tell me was I was I just a pain in the butt
1: mostly um (laughs) You did very little training, which made me jealous. Um, but mind you, I also appreciate that I that you were training for a very different event than what yeah. I was. Yeah. Um, and what did we make you do? We made you swim something. At was it a hundred or a two hundred? Oh, think not at
0: two hundred. It was a hundred.
1: It it's a hundred <laughs> at like in Fukuoka or in Yokohama or something like that. Yokohama. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yokohama, and it was like. It was mostly I think all of the boys kind of going, just and the girls as well, uh, I have to say, that were were just like we're just curious what's gonna happen if Hawkey does a hundred meters. Um, and it was basically you were I think you're a second under world record pace. Yeah. And or something like that, something stupid like that. So the whole crowd gets excited. <laughs> and then seeing you and the piano hitting <laughs> you in the last part, it was kind of it was one of those things that I was just like, wow, this is so he he is very much trained just for for one single event, yeah. and didn't have the capacity, you know, beyond that, which you know I, I respect. Like it's um, I, I pay out Chris Feidler, um, he's also you know a sprinter, yeah. that um, you know, it, it, you know he, he's the elder statesman of you know the squad and you know a respected lawyer and things like that. And Chris taught me two things. He taught me that if um, if you can make a shadow, you can get a tan um which is typical sprinter tour. And the second one was if you um if you break curfew, make sure you come home with a gold medalist and you'll be fine. And so I know a few other people that use me to get them home um, from different things. Yeah.
0: Man, I remember a time when we were in Athens. I, I told Grant Hackett this story. We're in a taxi just after Grant had won the 1500. And we're headed, we're headed to a nightclub at the end of the Olympics, uh, the end of the swimming the, of the yep. last night. And it was, uh, it was you... Grant Hackett and Michael Clem in the back of the taxi and I was in the front of the taxi and this taxi driver was going a hundred miles an hour down this road to try and get us to this nightclub and all I can remember thinking to myself is like if we die right now no one's going to know that I died this is going to be these three guys (laughs) in the back someone else oh that's all I could think at the time it was like crazy but mate we had yeah well getting back
1: from that night was actually I think was was uh like we realized that I think about 5 a.m. Um, so this is the first night after the swimming, by the way, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, all the swimmers go out that night um, and we had to get back to the village because we had a press conference. All the swim team had a press yeah. conference at 7am that, right. that morning. And I was like, okay, who puts the press conference on there when you know that the swimmers are going to be going out? Yeah. And so, look, we, <laughs> we got home, but only just, um, and you know, we then kind of wheeled out to do the press conference. So look, that was a
0: fun night though. It was a fun night. We had some good times together. Yeah. Mate, well, listen, like I said, I love being your teammate. I love learning from you. I love watching you. I learned so much as a coach from watching you and being your teammate and then putting it into my athletes and helping them have Olympic success. Uh, like I said, I just spent a lot of time watching you, mate. And it was, it was such a, an honor to be your teammate. And I'm so blessed um, to say that I was just even around you for so many years and learned so much from you and and I'm very thankful for that.
1: No pleasure. Like I enjoyed having you on the team as well. Um and you know, and it, it's been great to be able to see you go from being a summer to actually being an elite coach as well. A lot of people go into coaching. Um, but being an elite coach, I think, is 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 a very different thing. Um so well done on that. Um, and yeah, you know, we had some we had some great times and no reason why we can't have any more We did
0: now. Listen, I do remember what it was last question Why is the 200 freestyle stagnant? Why why hasn't it progressed from where you were Thank you
1: agree? Yes. Um, I completely entirely agree um, So basically everyone in the world is swimming the 200 freestyle the wrong way um, you. Okay. so you cannot swim easily for hundred and fifty meters and then going to a sprint. And I don't care who your coach is that is telling you that, you are going to limit what time you can potentially do. And at the moment, whilst the entire field sits across at the same speed, anyone who steps up in this race will win it if they're, you know, within that realm. If you're in a final at the moment, you can win at the Olympics next year. Um, And it's about putting more speed into the earlier part of it and it's about making yourself hurt more. You have to be willing to deal with the pain that is going to exist for the last 50 meters. And that pain should have started before then, um, not after then. So, the 200, you know, there's two strategies go out really fast, try and hold on. The second strategy is to actually have the first 50 meters, which is a comfortable fast speed, um, which would be a second 50, 100 meter swim. Um, about that kind of speed, Um, come off the wall, stabilize for that second 50, build into the third. And then the third is all about maintaining a speed that's very similar to that second, but prepping yourself for the final 50 meters. I've just given it all the way.
0: There it is. That's from the legend himself. What do you have to flip in at the 100 in order to go 144? What do you have to be at the 100?
1: Uh, 144, It it depends on what your background is. but you know, I, I would say for most people, high 50s mm-hmm. um, is, is where you need to be um, to yeah. be able to get around there. I think I may have snuck it around in 51s to be able to do it, but it was because I knew what my back end was. It was very different to everyone else's. Oh, so even God. with that, when we look at some of the charts and things, no one falls too far outside of the range. So look at those charts and you know exactly what you need to be able to do to be able to um, go under 144.
0: Perfect. Good stuff, legend. Love talking to you. Love seeing you again. And um, stay well, my friend. All right. You too, buddy. All All right. Take care. See you, bud. See you you around.